You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. I'm Drew Leiter. And I'm Cletus Jacobs. And welcome to episode 362 of the Earth Station, DCU! Tonight we're going to talk Fire and Ice, Welcome to Smallville number four, Birds of Prey number four, Blue Beetle number four, Batman number 140, Poison Ivy number 17, Shazam number six, Titans, Beast World Tour, Metropolis number one, Titans, Beast World Waller Rising number one, and Sweet Tooth, season two, episode two, Into the Deep. But before we get into that, let's talk some DC news. All right, Cletus, first up for DC News. DC's Black History Month anthology, DC Power 2024, publishes on January 20th. The 104-page issue will open with a forward from recent cyborg writer and Milestone Initiative alum, Margan Hampton, before leading into a new set of stories featuring Black Manta, The Signal, The Spectre, Kid Flash, Nubia, Mr. Terrific, Bloodwind, Valzad, and Thunder and Lightning. The issue will also feature a new epilogue to N.K. Jemison's and Jamal Campbell's Hugo Award-winning series, Far Sector. I'm excited for it, Drew. There's a lot of characters in there that I like that don't have their own books or aren't popping up that frequently right now, so it'll be cool to get some stories. I'm not expecting necessarily all of them to be winners, but I'm sure we're going to get at least a couple of good stories out of that. Yeah, that's with all anthologies. Some of them, some stories are good, some of them aren't. <laughs> I am curious. I'm hoping that they're mostly new stories and not. T- I'm, I would be shocked if there's not at least one or two reprints in there, but we'll see. Um, I'm hoping for mostly new stuff. All right, well, that wraps up DC News for this week. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll do our comics talk. We are the Cigar Nerds, bringing nerdy sophistication and geeky indulgence on all topics, including movies, video games, science, and pop culture news, all from the Nerd Cave Cigar Lounge. Find us on iTunes, Stitchers, Google Play, and wherever fine podcasts are found, including esonetwork.com and cigarnerdpodcast.com. So fire up a cigar. It's time to get nerdy. Pardon the interruption. We'll bring you back to your podcast in just a moment. But first, promo for the Cosmic Pizza Podcast. In the Cosmic Pizza Podcast, your pizza delivery guys, Dan, Sean, and Paul, serve you a slice of life. As we discuss literally anything in the universe. Conspiracy theories? Movies that we've liked. Women in comedy, voice actors, film directors and producers, authors. But what we don't talk about is pizzas. Wednesday, I'm here with you people. It's wild. And we're back. But before we get into this week's comic books talk, we got to let you know there's going to be spoilers. We got spoilers. 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 We got spoilers, spoilers for you. We got spoilers. 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 We've got spoilers, spoilers for you. For you. Spoilers. 
Alright, let's talk. Fire and Ice, welcome to Smallville number 4. The big tease is a mess after Jimmy Olsen turned into a giant turtle last issue. Ice and Rocky work to clean it up. Bia is at the Kawachi Caves helping all the bad guys get settled in since they can't stay at the big tease anymore. Charlie Rhodes announces that physical challenges will be incorporated into the show. During Bia's first challenge, Lobo shows up stating he's here to play. After a wee bit of flirting and roughhousing with Lobo, Bia gets a call from Martha Kent, asking her to meet at the Smallville Drag Brunch. When Bia arrives, Martha forces Bia and Tora to work things out. Rocky shows up and stirs the pot. The women get into a fight and are thrown out of the Drag Brunch. Outside the Drag Brunch are protesters being led by Mandy Perkins, a.k.a. Miss Congeniality, fed up, Fire punches Mandy, knocking her out of her high heels and across the street. Ice tells Fire she needs some space, so she'll be staying at Rocky's place tonight. While Fire and Ice are arguing, nobody noticed Mandy being dragged into the alley and eaten by a group of savagely hungry people. Fire returns to the Big T's to find Honey and Tamarind kissing on the couch. Fire is upset with Honey at first for leaving the cave and then just gives in. Fire ends up hooking up with Lobo out in the field, not realizing a fire is burning in downtown Smallville. I didn't think this was a bad comic by any means, Drew, and there are certainly parts of the comic that I continue to really enjoy. I think my problem with the last couple issues, though, is that the focus of the comic has really kind of splintered, and the cast got too big way too quick, Drew. We jumped to, like... Obviously, Fire and Ice are absolutely still the main characters, right? And then the siblings that Ice and Fire have befriended, you know, respectively, each one, um, seem to be, and, and the hairdresser, those three seem to be, like, the next tier of supporting characters. But then there's a whole host of these D-listers, right? And I understand that that's sort of supposed to be clearly what they want the crux of the book to be, is these D-listers coming and trying for relevance at the salon and with this reality show. But, but nonetheless, Drew, the problem is is that I don't feel like the book had enough time to breathe and really establish their characters and what they're trying to do with the main characters because at the end of the day, it's still a 20-page comic and you have to spend some time, as they have, you know, dealing with other storylines and other characters that you've incorporated. And I just don't know... I feel like they did too much, Drew, and I don't know that there's enough pages dedicated to the main characters, in my opinion. I see your point on that. Um, I thought this was an okay comic. Hey, I'm kind of tired of ice and fire fighting all the time. <laughs> I ready, agree. I'm ready to move on to something different. It seems like every issue they're fighting. Thinking back to the Justice League days, I don't remember them fighting this much. So, of course, well, the book I, wasn't just focused on them. The Justice League book wasn't just focused on them, though. So, But still... I don't know. It seems like there's too much fighting going on between the two. I agree completely. And I think, obviously, part of that is what they've chosen to do in terms of the crux of the book, again, seems to be those two resolving their issues. But, again, I do think that part of the reason that that plot line has gotten extended beyond clearly that's what the creators want to do is because, you know, when you only give them 10, 15 pages instead of the whole book, that storyline is naturally going to take longer to tell. 
So, I mean, I agree. I'm totally there with you, Drew. Like, I'm, it just feels, it feels like they aren't really friends, which is just so out of left field for those two, and I don't think earned by this story. And I don't know that that's what they're trying to do either, right? But they are so, you know, the level of bickering, it feels more like if, I don't know, Harley Quinn tried to team up with Dick Grayson, right? You know what I mean? Like, they'd be amicable, but there'd be a lot of, like, kind of back and forth. Because they're not really friends. They're not really, like, they're on the same side, but they don't really see eye to eye. And I, that, that's what it feels like they've been portraying these two as, and that doesn't feel right for those characters. No, it doesn't. Then we have the addition of Lobo in this issue, who, in my opinion, we didn't need another character in here. And the only reason I feel like he's here is to make Charlie jealous. I I do wonder if they're setting up something else with those twins. The sister in particular, Drew, feels like something else is going on. I don't know if she's just like a jealous lover, is what their angle that they're going with her, but she was the sister was specifically was a little out of control this issue and I wonder if I wonder if the book is setting up something with those siblings. That's a possibility. Guess we'll have to wait and see on that one. Alright, well let's move on to our next title for this week. Birds of Prey number four. The Mascara. The birds of prey are fighting their way through Amazons to escape after finding sin. Wonder Woman appears in Xana draws her sword. Wonder Woman reminds Xana that she is forbidden from this island and she knows it. Wonder Woman leaves Xana to her sisters as she has more urgent matters to deal with. Black Canary throws three silver balls she calls Banshees at Wonder Woman, something that she and Xantana cooked up. They slow Wonder Woman down enough for Big Barda to land a huge punch on Wonder Woman. Barda tells the others to find the Mega Rod and get Sin out of there. Barter takes on Wonder Woman, and the women exchange blows for several minutes until finally Wonder Woman gets the upper hand. Wonder Woman tells the Amazons to get power dampeners on Barda before she wakes up or they'll have a big problem they can't solve. Wonder Woman continues to search for Black Canary and Sin. She lands in a trap set by Batgirl Cassandra Kane. After facing several of Batgirl's traps, Wonder Woman finally lands a punch on her, sending her flying into a tree. Big Barda has recovered and comes to the aid of Batgirl. Wonder Woman uses her magic lasso on Big Barda and learns that the birds of prey are here to save a child that the Amazons have taken, Sin. They came here to save her from something called called Megaria, who destroys the whole island. The Throne Room Diana informs Philippus that the birds of prey were trying to save Sin. Philippus states they should have contacted us through their normal channel. Suddenly, Diana and Philippus realize something is wrong with Penelope. Wonder Woman finds Penelope captured by the creature Megara. Holding Cell, the Mascara. Black Canary, Barda, Harley Quinn, and Xana have all been captured. Batgirl shows up with the keys and frees them. Free of their cell, the Birds of Prey discover that Wonder Woman has been taken captive by Megara. Next issue, Into the Mouth of Madness. Uh, Drew, I just love this book. I, 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 I think I say it every week, but the artwork is such a big part of that. It is so good, and it is so well suited to the book. I, I think the writing is very good. Don't get me wrong. Like I, the, 
that is not a weak point of the book, but the art, man, really just takes this comic to another level. This is just an excellent, excellent book so far. Okay, there's one thing i got to point out about this book, because a lot of times we get these series like Batman versus Superman or, you know, ridiculous reasons to get heroes together and have them battle each other and then end up not even battling each other and going after some other villain. In this book, we see legit reasons why we have, you know, normally we wouldn't have Wonder Woman battling Big Barda, but, you know, this is, there is a legit reason. They're on opposite sides here. And, uh, I gotta say... And they, they handle it the right way, right? Like, Wonder Woman is responding appropriately to an attack on her island, but she isn't going over the top, right? Like, she's not lethal in her attacks. She imprisons them as she should, right, given that they attacked her island, but... She doesn't just dismiss what they're saying out of hand. She immediately starts looking into what's going on and keeps Sin right by her side, knowing that at least hypothetically, that's the safest that Sin could be, right? I, I totally agree with you, Drew. It's, yes, they end up fighting each other, but even as they're doing it, both sides are, aren't just you know, fighting for the sake of it. It makes complete sense, like you said, why they're doing it, but also the way in which they do it and the way that they react after the fight, all of that, like, all of it makes sense. I gotta tell you, though, that battle between Wonder Woman and Big Barda, that was freaking awesome to see. <laughs> it was great. It was great. I, I loved the whole thing. I loved the whole thing of Wonder Woman being, like, the final boss that you aren't ready to fight yet, right? Like, they, they're all sort of, like, taking turns trying to keep her back as much as they can, but none of them can really do it. Barda get some good licks in, right? But really, I mean, she doesn't stand a chance either. I, I, I love that whole sequence. It's just great, because you have Wonder Woman essentially just tearing through, which they know that she will. That's the whole point where they were trying to be covert, is they knew that they couldn't handle her in a fight. And I like that the book followed through on that, Drew, that it wasn't like, yeah, we can't handle her, and when she actually pops up, in fact, it's, re it's really easy. No. The book is like, no, it, it, this is why they didn't want to do this in the first place, is because they couldn't handle her. Just, like I said, the writing is very good. It just it, it, the, When you pair it with this artwork for this style of book, I mean, it's just, it's so good. The other thing I wanted to point out is, you know, we saw Wonder Woman get the upper hand on all these women, and then at the end, we see that Wonder Woman gets captured by the villain. And uh, it, it shows you how powerful this villain is and the reason why it's so dangerous that they get sent away from this villain. Great book. Um, I'm, excited for, I'm excited for next issue, but so far this has been my favorite issue of the series. Yeah, I'd have to agree. The, the Wonder Woman confrontation really just puts it over the top. All right, moving on to our next issue for this week. Blue Beetle number four. Victoria Cord receives flowers from Lex Luthor and a card offering his serious condolences. Victoria burns the flowers with a flamethrower. When Jaime finishes work at the diner, Uli of the Horizon is waiting to speak to him. They take a walk together. When a group of people start snapping pictures of her with their phones, Ula snaps her fingers and their phones shut off. She explains to Jaime that her people have the ability to speak with technology, but her gift is far more developed. Jaime excuses himself and is about to take off when Ula asks him if he enjoyed their date. 
Jaime stares at her mortified and then takes off flying. Paco goes dancing with Zamoria, a.k.a. Dynastis, the Yellow Beetle. They end up kissing, but that gets interrupted by Fadeaway and Gimmicks. Fadeaway states that they are here to save their butts. Jaime meets up with Starfire and tells her that the Blood Scarab is attacking people that he cares about. Jaime believes the only solution to stop the Blue Scarab is to kill him. Jaime has a meeting with Victoria Cord. Jaime wants to know how Victoria would kill someone like the Blue Beetle. Was it just me, or this? did this feel like it was a Valentine's issue? Yeah, a little bit. I also, clearly the book wants Victoria Cord to be, if not an outright villain antagonistic, Drew, but again, they still aren't doing enough. I still feel like the book is mostly relying on you having seen the Blue Beetle movie and determining that she's a villain. Because, like, she certainly is doing antagonistic things, Drew, but they just, they keep beating around the bush, to be frank. Like, they just, like, commit to it already. I, I just find myself getting frustrated with that plot line. Like, do it or don't. Yeah, I noticed that's irritating. That's been a thorn in your side the whole time we've been reading this miniseries. <laughs> Well, it's just because they keep fo- Drew, they keep focusing on it so much, and so many of these scenes, the key question that it feels like the author wants you to ask is, "Ooh, is she a baddie or not?" And like, I, okay, I'm intrigued by that question, but you can't just keep at, "Ooh, is she a baddie?" "Ooh, is she a baddie?" "Ooh, is she a bad?" Like, okay, I, I, I get it. Wh- which one is it? You've uh, you, enough. You have asked me the question enough. Answer the damn question. <laughs> They keep teasing Victoria Court as a villain, but the real villain here is the Blood Scarab. And uh, he wasn't really featured that much in this issue. I really, I see he wasn't, Drew, but the one scene that we did get with it already felt like we're going to let that villain off easy, right? Because they just built in, uh, like, oh, it's not real. The Blood Scarab, you know, the person isn't really in control of what the Blood Scarab is doing. I just, uh, which is which is certainly fine, and clearly they're going towards the route where Jaime is looking towards lethal solution, right? And so I, I don't know, Drew. I feel like we can already see the end of this story, right? Jaime decides to go initially with a lethal solution, realizes that the blood scarab isn't what he thinks it is, realizes that that's not who he is as a hero, and he'll never kill. And then they find another way. It is okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know that I need to read the next two issues to know that that's how it's going to play out. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Cletus Jacobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine that's how it's going to go, too. So, And uh, what, what issue is this again? Oh, this is four, so you're probably right. We've got two more issues. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our next issue for this week, Batman number 140. Zurin R has taken over Batman's body. Zur tells Joker that he is going to end him once and for all. In his mind, Bruce faces off against Zurin R's from across the multiverse. When he was hopping from universe to universe, touching the minds of all the other Batmans, his Zur invited them to join him. Strength in numbers. The Joker runs, and Zur chases after him, going through a series of pre-planned traps. When Zur finally catches Joker, he starts beating him to a pulp. Joker zaps Zur with a stun gun and then and escapes. Lucy Chesson, the Gray Shadow, shows up 
asking Bruce what happened to him. Zur replies that he is much stronger than when she mentored him. Bruce regains control of his body and tells Lucy that she needs to run away from there. The Joker will kill her and he's trapped in his own mind. Lucy states that there's one thing she knows about Bruce. He's never trapped. He knows every way in and out, and if he doesn't, he makes one. Zur takes control of Batman's body. Zur captures Joker with his batarangan rope. Zur lifts Joker over his head and brings him down on his knee just like Bane did to him years ago. Bruce retakes control of his body and wakes up on a bed in his microcave, not knowing where the Joker is. Bruce realizes Zurin R is gone from his mind and discovers he has transferred himself into the robot body of Failsafe. We also had a backup story in this, the Savage Garden of Gotham. Vandal Savage is invited to a meeting with Gotham's elite. While discussing how the elite can reclaim their influence on Gotham, Vandal Savage kills a burglar to show what his real power is. Impressed by Vandal's act of murder, Leonid Cole mentions he belongs to a secret society interested in controlling Gotham. Cole offers to make sure that Vandal Savage becomes the next commissioner of police. End. First thing I want to say about this issue, Cletus, is I didn't really care for it that much. I I, I knew this was coming, but I, I didn't I wasn't really interested in the mental battle between Bruce and Zurinar. I, I just wasn't interested in watching Batman try to hunt down the Joker and kill him. Well, especially because we've seen that plot. Like, I, I am exhausted by that plot line, Drew, because you shouldn't commit to it, right? The only thing new to do, in a sense, is to have him actually kill the Joker. Even that, we have seen stories where he's done that, like alternate universe ones. So, I, I don't know, man. Like, I... I, I I get, I, I'm a little tired of that plot line because it's a plot line that you know how it's going to end because you can't have the continuity Batman kill the continuity Joker. You just can't do that. It, it, sure, I mean, you could, right, but you'd be throwing away decades' worth of comic book history for a quick thrill, right, that would, make, that would go completely against everything you know about both characters. So it, with that being the case, why, I just don't understand why writers feel the need to constantly toy with that storyline. We all know what you're going to do. Pick something else. Do, you can do a joke. You can do the, we've read many Joker stories since we've done this podcast, Drew, where they have been very interesting, and the Joker has been very menacing, and Batman's conflict with them is very interesting, and at no point were we questioning whether or not Batman was going to kill him. Yeah, well, I wasn't questioning it here either. <laughs> right, but, well, yes, but you know what I'm saying. Like, that's not what the story's about. It, yet this one, part of it clearly is. And I know that, there, that, that Zdarsky is trying to say, well, well it's not Bruce that's going to kill him. It's his backup uh, alternate persona. It's like, oh, it's the same thing, man. Like, it's not that you're not as clever as you think you are with this storyline. It's still the same story. Well, now we're going to see Zur in Failsafe's robot body. So I'm guessing that now that he's transferred into a new body, Failsafe go after the Joker and probably kill him as a separate entity this time. We know there's three Jokers running around, so I'm sure DC's happy to kill off a couple of them. I was just about to say, the only thing I could see in terms of a Joker dying is the fact that DC may want to go back to the one Joker um, status quo, which I don't blame them. 
Um, they've never really done anything with the three Jokers. We got half of a story that I remain fully convinced we will never read the second half of, especially now we know that both both parts of the creative team, both halves, left. <laughs> so the odds of us seeing the second part of Three Jokers is basically zero. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame them, Drew, for getting it back down to one. I could, You could argue they could do that by just pretending that that story didn't happen. And I think I think most people would go right along with that pretty happily. Yeah, I agree with you. I foresee Zuranar killing the Joker, so in that fail-safe body. It's, it might be implied that, that one of them already did die with that scene. We see Joker get appears to get his back broken and then Batman closing in on him and then Bruce wakes up later. I, I think it is certainly likely that if if we're going to go the route of, well, it's okay for it to happen because Zer's the one who killed him, then I think it's likely that one of the Jokers is already dead, if that's the route they're going down. All right. Well, we, we also have that backup story. I thought we were done with Vandal Savage, but apparently we're not. It looks like he was meeting with elite people that felt like they had ties to the Court of Owls, and they looked like they want to make Vandal Savage Commissioner of Police which would be interesting because we already have a commissioner of police right now. So if Montoya is outed as commissioner, I'll be curious to see if we're going to see some stories with her teaming up with Batman or not. Or, you know, maybe she, her time as commissioner ends and we'll see her doing more stuff as the question. So kind of curious about what's going to happen with that. Oh, I, I, I didn't think we were done because we had that other backup story, Drew, that established that he had to stay in Gotham due to the whatever happened with the, the latest meteorite. He, it kind of bound him to Gotham if he wants to retain his immortality. Oh yeah, um, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> so they were gonna, yeah. Well, so they were gonna have to do something. I um, guess I was done with Vandal Savage. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I, 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 I didn't hate the backup, i got to be honest. I mean, I'm not necessarily, you know, a huge Vandal Savage fan, but this I like the wealthy coming to visit him and sort of testing the waters on one that was very clearly a part of the Court of Owls. You know, never outright says it, but, you, but like, the story does enough that you know that that's what he's doing. You can really see him sort of testing the waters to see what Vandal Savage is really about. It was good. I, I don't know, Drew. I, I liked the characterization that went with that. I don't know necessarily that I'm excited to see Commissioner Savage, but they were, we've read worse backups. Yes, we have. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see where they go with this story. It's got to be better than the Zuranar story. All right, well, let's move on to our next issue for this week, Poison Ivy number 17. Ivy wakes Janet up and asks her to go shopping for a few things. When Harley walks into the room, Janet gets all weird. Janet asks Harley, what do we tell Ivy? Harley responds, nothing, because there is nothing to tell. It was one time, and if you remember, you kissed me. A minute later, Ivy pulls Janet aside and and tells her, if you're being weird around Harley because of what happened between us, don't be. It was one time, and we were both not in our right minds. No reason to upset Harley. Slaughter Swamp later. Ivy works on manufacturing more of the antidote when she is interrupted by Killer Croc. Ivy freaks when she realizes that Croc has been eating the Lamnia mushrooms until she realizes that he is immune. 
Croc won't give Ivy any of his blood because he is scared of needles. Ivy states it doesn't matter because she still has her other cure. Ivy's children show up at the shack and attack her. Solomon Grundy appears and throws one against a tree. Grundy grabs Ivy by the throat. Croc defends Ivy. Ivy interrupts Grundy and Croc's fight. They got bigger problems as more of Ivy's children arrive. I'm very excited for this plotline, Drew. I'm very curious to see where it goes, where we can kind of see the problems that Ivy created at the beginning of the story kind of coming home to roost. We saw the, the promise of that, so to speak, in the last issue where she was dreaming about all of this, and now we're seeing it come to fruition, this episode or issue. Really excited to see where that conflict goes. Also wondering, it feels like they're setting up a kind of an interesting team, Drew, at least for this storyline, and I'm, I'm intrigued. Yeah, it feels like they're setting up Ivy, Croc, and Grundy against all these children they are going to be attacking. So it, it'll be interesting to see how many children actually come, because I have a feeling it's going to be more than they can handle. All right, well, let's move on to our next issue for this week. Shazam number six, The Rock of Eternity. Freddy tells the gods that if Billy is too proud to serve the gods, then he will. Give him the powers of Shazam. Freddy whispers to Billy, It's a scam. Fight me now and make it look real. Billy and Freddy tussle until Zeus shouts, Stop! Zeus is angry at being deceived. He knows real combat from theatrics. Suddenly, Freddy's backup arrives. Darla as Bullet Girl, Pedro as the Mr. Adam, Eugene the Invincible, and Mr. Dinosaur as Spy Smasher. After raiding the trophy room, they have become the new Squadron of Justice. Zeus and the other gods break out into laughter until the kids attack. Eugene uses his staff to turn Zeus into a duck. Billy notices Solomon hiding in the shadows. Billy makes a deal with Solomon to make him wiser so the gods cannot control him. Solomon agrees but warns Billy that there is a price with his duality. Billy transforms into the captain. Zeus tries to control the captain, but he's too smart for that now. The captain tells Zeus that if the gods are so worried about being forgotten, then come to Earth yourself. Find good things to do and be helpful. Zeus tells the captain to take his family and get out of their sight. They will take his words under advisement. Back at the Rock of Eternity, in the Chamber of Souvenirs, Mr. Dinosaur expresses his desire to become its t caretaker. The captain tells him the job is yours. Mr. Dinosaur states he couldn't because the supervisors, the auditors, would never permit it. In fact, Mr. Dinosaur adds, he is so late in filing his paperwork, they're probably on their way to administer his punishment. Elsewhere, an alien aircraft full of dinosaurs enters Earth's atmosphere and comes to an abrupt stop as it is landing. They are greeted by Black Adam, who demands to know why they are invading the sovereign nation of Kondok. Well, Drew, I think the biggest development in this issue is a clear sign from Wade that he's trying to move Shazam back into classic Captain Marvel. Obviously, we're already calling him the captain, and now we're establishing a more separate identity between Shazam and Billy, which which goes back to the Fawcett comics, where they were essentially two different people, almost more like the old school Thor back when, back in the early days of Marvel. 
I I feel conflicted on that, Drew, because I'm I know that there are a lot of old school Captain Marvel fans that are going to greatly prefer it, a version of the Captain that is not Billy, and I know that that is true to the roots of the character, but I I don't know that I prefer that, Drew. I think part of what makes Shazam or the modern Shazam interesting is the fact that it's sort of big and tight. And I understand that that is subjective. I'm not saying that I'm right, but I think I like when Shazam is Billy and not, a you know, a different person. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from on that. Because it's always interesting to see the, a child's mind in, a, in an adult's body. That can be a very interesting take. Instead of Billy transforming into, like, another Superman. That's the thing. I just don't know that, it, it, again, I want to be very clear, this is my subjective opinion, but I just don't think that there's enough to differentiate a a separate entity, Captain Marvel, is, in my opinion, not that dissimilar to Superman. And I just don't feel like you're getting that much unique. Obviously, his power set is still unique, right? But character-wise, he feels very similar to just like your very old-school classic you know, do the right thing, strong, strong jaw, superhero. Uh, to me, he's more unique and interesting as a character when it's a kid. Like you've got like the outward characteristics of this old school superhero, but it's a 12, 13 year old boy doing it. To me, that's that, to me that personally, that is much more interesting. I was wondering how that was going to affect Mary and Freddie, but. Freddy doesn't have powers yet, still. I was pretty sure he was going to be getting powers. That didn't happen here. Mary gets her powers from a different set of gods, so that shouldn't affect her either. I don't know. It'll it'll be interesting to see how Wade plays it out. We also got the introduction of Black Adam in this, where it looks like we're going to be having the Captain versus Black Adam very soon, with dinosaurs in the mix. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm looking forward to that confrontation. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering what it's going to look like. Yeah, I'm really excited to get our first taste of, you know, this sort of, you know, reinvigorated kind of going back to back to basics, Captain Marvel, Shazam, and see his interaction. What Wade's going to do with Black Adam? That should be pretty interesting, I think. All right. Well, let's move on to our next title for this week: Titans Beast World Tour. Metropolis number one. Nia Knoll is eating at a restaurant with her friend Yvette when she has a vision. Nia explains that the Lazarus rain changed her powers and she can now see into the future. Nia sees some kind of explosion and attempts to warn people, but no one will listen to her. They just think she is crazy. Nia goes to Superman John Kent and asks for his help. People will listen to Superman. While Superman delivers the message of the upcoming catastrophe, Nia figures out the source of the problem. Livewire goes berserk and overloads the substation and everything it powered. Nia goes after Livewire while Superman rescues people. When Nia finds Livewire, she has transformed into some kind of beast. Nia fights the beast, knocking it unconscious. Meanwhile, elsewhere, Amanda Waller smiles as she observes from her phone. Gotcha! Dreamer will return to action against Amanda Waller in Action Comics 1060. We also had a couple backup stories in this. Uh, the first one was called Turtle Boy. 
Jimmy Olsen comes into the Ace of Clubs for a cup of coffee because he's been out all night getting pictures of the half-men, half-animal monsters that are appearing everywhere. Suddenly, Jimmy throws his coffee mug, stating there is something in there. Professor Hamilton realizes it is probably a spore. Reports say that the spores are responsible for turning people into monsters. Jimmy runs out of the diner. Jimmy Olsen transforms into a giant turtle and begins terrorizing Metropolis. Bibbo chases after him, calling him Jimzilla. Professor Hamilton picks up Bibbo in a flying car. Bibbo shoots Jimmy with a bazooka that delivers a payload that causes Jimmy to pass out. Thinking that Jimmy is dying, the spore abandons his body looking for a more powerful host, Power Girl, who has already been transformed into some kind of bird. Jimmy has become himself again. Jimmy's hungry, but he's not feeling like himself anymore. Bibbo states that he can have Lois Lane's favorite suit, Turtle Suit. End. The last backup we had in this was called Don't Stop, A Tale from Beast World. Lois coordinates the rescue efforts from the Fortress of Solitude for the Super Family. When the Fortress comes under attack, Superman flies back. Superman is attacked by a spore, but a shockwave from a nanobot immobilizes the spore. Helix states he is unable to replicate the nanobot. Its origin was unknown and the technology extremely advanced. Helix reinforces the fortress's defenses and Superman returns to the field. Elsewhere, Brainiac states that he could not allow the spore to take Superman because Superman belongs to him. Once he is ready, Brainiac will strike. To be continued in Action Comics and Superman. These were fine, Drew. I I can't highly praise the comic. This this was uh, pretty typical of what we get with some of these tie-in books, and I just I think I think it's just when you put these kind of books out, Drew. This is what gets people tired of event comics. Again, it's not bad, but a lot of it's superfluous that you don't really need. But they want you to buy, and they push. And I understand. I think most people understand that you really don't need to buy a lot of these side comics, but they still push them, you know, as if they're important. They just consistently are not. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that. Now, it was kind of cool to see Nia Noel. We haven't seen her for a bit, but uh, I, the whole reason, but I think the whole reason behind her story is they're bringing her into action comics coming up soon. So I'm guessing that's the reason why they wanted to do this story. The Turtle Boy story was written by Dan Jurgens. And when I was reading it, it felt like I was back in the frickin' 90s. Because these are characters he wrote about back in the 90s. So, Jurgens <laughs> so, is still stuck in the 90s. <laughs> the, the Bibbo revival is odd, I have to admit. That, that character was popular back in the early 90s when Jurgens was writing, writing the book. Superman book, so... And then the last, you know, the last story we had was, it was fine. It was kind of silly that this nanobot kind of comes out of nowhere, because I'm not really sure how Brainiac sent it, got it in Superman in the first place, unless it's something he planted there in the past. So the comic was fine. It wasn't, it's nothing, it's nothing really anybody needs to pick up unless they really want to read about these characters. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our last title for this week. Titans Beast World, Waller Rising number one. Gotham City. Archie is serving as an EMT when he gets a psychic call from his aunt, Amanda Waller. 
Waller wants Deadeye to retrieve a Phantom Zone projector stolen by Dr. Hate. The Phantom Zone. Val Zod, the Superman of Earth-2, and Red Tornado, a.k.a. the Lois Lane of Earth-2, were trapped in the Phantom Zone during the Adventures of John Kent miniseries. Dr. Hate appears and abducts Val Zod because he is needed for a magic spell. The Red Sea. Black Manta and Gallus the Goat sell a bomb they stole from Amanda Waller to Dr. Hate. The bomb has been modified with one of Beast Boy's spores. When Mana asks for his money, Dr. Hate instead takes the soul of his Manta Man. The Tower of Hate. Dr. Hate is using the life forces of powerful metas and humans to breach through to a dimension called the Kingdom. Once inside, Dr. Hate twists the souls of the Kingdom's inhabitants into mindless beasts, forcing them to drag metas back to their dimension. Waller wants Deadeye to enter the Kingdom and sever Dr. Hate's connection to it. Waller provides Deadeye with auric calcum or to amplify, to amplify his psychic abilities. Queen Nubia, Dr. Mist, Freedom Beast are all taken by Dr. Hate. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, Batwing HQ. Vixen meets up with David Zavimbi, a.k.a. Batwing. Dr. Hate's animals come for them, but David invokes a shield to protect them. The Red Sea. Batwing and Vixen go searching for Black Manta and find him. Manta tries to hold Vixen at knife point, but that doesn't work. Manta is subdued. Manta catches Batwing and Vixen up on what happened to his Manta men. Deadeye tracks Dr. Hate to Tanisha. Dr. Hate sends Deadeye to the kingdom where he finds Valzad, Nubia, and the others. Batwing's jet. Vixen's grandmother used to tell her stories about a kingdom where the parliaments of the universes converge in harmony. Vixen believes that she can transport to this kingdom. Vixen appears in the kingdom and finds Valzad, Nubia, and the others. Combining their powers, Deadeye is able to sever Dr. Hate's connection to the kingdom and send everyone back to Earth. Ethiopia, the hero's rendezvous point. Vixen invites Deadeye to join their new beginning. End. Drew, unlike the other tie-in comics, this one seems relevant, shockingly so, in that I thought that Dr. Hate was going to be more relevant to the main Beast World story, but uh, apparently not, because that seemed pretty well wrapped up by this. So, to the point, Drew, where I feel like some people who choose not to read the tie-in might be a little confused by the what I imagine, based on this, going to be the absence of Dr. Hate from the rest of the story. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see, I guess. I I was more intrigued with this cat, the cast in this story. This cast felt pretty representative, and it looks like we're going to get a new team of heroes. I thought it was really interesting to have. Basically, the whole issue was minorities, and uh, I thought it was I thought it was a great issue. It, it seems to be launching some sort of new super team, so I'm kind of intrigued by that. I am too, Drew. I like a lot of the cast members, so to speak, for this potential team. You know, definitely, like you said, definitely trying to be a lot more, you know, uh, inclusive with representation in that. Uh, clearly, I don't think <laughs> I don't think there's a single white character in that cast. So I, that's that's cool, Drew. And I, like I said, I like a lot of those characters. Valzad getting more inclusion recently is cool because I really liked that Earth Two story from New Fifty Two. And I know that, I feel like at that point, that story's, it's it, not that recent anymore. 
So you kind of have to, if you want him to ever be a character, you kind of have to include him every so often to kind of remind people who he is. This was cool. I, I, again, I didn't think this was an amazing comic by any means, but it was more the promise of what they could do with it and the, the potential team members that they could do with this. That was really cool to me. Yeah, and it was cool to see some of the characters we haven't seen for a while. I mean, we we haven't seen Val Zod since the um, Adventures of John Kent miniseries, which we covered. And Deadeye, to me, I don't remember that character before. So that's new. And he has ties to Amanda Waller. It's always cool to see Queen Nubia and Dr. Miss, Freedom Beast. I remember him from the Titan series we just uh, covered recently. So that, all that was interesting. And I had no idea that there was a new Batwing and that he was stationed in the Congo. So felt like I missed something there. So, But yeah, it, w- it was cool to see all these characters. All right, well, that wraps up our comics talk for this week. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk Sweet Tooth. Helm report. Sir, there's Klingons on the starboard bow. Starboard bow? Starboard bow! What are they doing there? They seem to be waiting for the new episode of Earth Station Trek. Science, what do we know about this Earth Station Trek? It's a podcast that tracks through the history of Star Trek, from the early days on NBC to the future on Paramount Plus and everywhere in between. Navigation, how would one find such a podcast? By setting coordinates for EarthStationTrek.com or by doing a sensor sweep of Spotify, iTunes, or any other quadrant where fine podcasts are available. Captain, what are we going to do about the Klingons? We come in peace, Commander. Weapon station, shoot to kill. Shoot Shoot to to kill. kill! Shoot to kill! It's a new era for Doctor Who. Life depends on change and renewal. And the crew from Earth Station Who podcast will continue to guide you through the past present, and future of the franchise. Though not necessarily in that order. Join us for some wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey talk of stories new and old. Listen to Earth Station Who wherever you access your podcasts. We're a proud member of the ESO Network. We're all stories in the end. And we're back. Let's talk Sweet Tooth, Season 2, Episode 2, Into the Deep Woods. In the early days of the Great Crumble, The big man spent every waking moment looking for his family, hoping he could bring them home. But this wasn't home anymore. Now it was just a place full of bad memories. Big man joins the last men in order to find his family. In the present, big man wakes up at Amy's place. Amy has a plan for saving Gus and the rest of the hybrids. Wendy's voice comes over the radio. Mom, we're alive. We're in the pump house under the elephant pen. They took Roy. Amy changes her plan and decides to walk in the front door of the preserve in broad daylight. Amy tells Big Man to wait for her signal. Right when Amy is about to get caught, Big Man shows up and saves her. The guard comes back, recognizing Big Man as a defector. Amy hits him over the head with a shovel. An alarm is sounded. Big Man puts Gus's doll, dog in the, in the feed bag to let him know that he is there. Gus receives the dog and knows Big Man is there. Bobby reminds them that they need to get his collar off before their mom comes back. Gus is taken to a room with a lot of purple flowers. Dr. Singh tells Gus that the pollen seems to have a hallucinogenic effect on his kind, sort of like hypnosis. The doctor is hoping the flowers can help Gus remember where he came from. Gus remembers a place called Project Midnight Sun, Fort Smith. 
Dr. Singh realizes that Force Smith created the virus. Amy and Big Man get chased by a drone. Big Man uses a slingshot and a can of food to take it out. Soon, a truck mounted with a gun is in pursuit. Amy and Big Man are able to get away and out of the city. Amy's plan failed. Amy and Big Man decide to get more muscle so they can rescue the kids. Since Mom and Big Man left, the kids decide to break themselves out and go to Yellowstone. There were a lot of really interesting developments in this episode, Drew. It was cool to see. We, we've kind of flashed back a little bit um, because obviously at the end of the previous episode, we had seen Dog get delivered. And so kind of seeing the process that led to Dog's delivery, that was cool. It is interesting that they are under the impression, I mean, in a sense correctly, that, that the zookeeper and Big Man left, right? So they're going to try and get break themselves out, which is, they're, they're right in that they left, but they didn't leave them permanently. They meant to left to go get more help. They have no way of knowing that. But I think that's going to be interesting to see, you know, that lack of inability for communication between those two sides to see how they end up working that out. It's going to be cool. The other thing, Drew, that I really liked in this episode was Dr. Singh's wife finally, I didn't even, you know, I think we learned this episode that she had never even seen a hybrid before. And we see the moment where she finally actually sees a hybrid. We had been getting teases earlier in this episode and in last episode that she's kind of seeing the humanity behind the hybrid. And that moment felt pretty poignant because it feels like she's been able to sort of lie to herself and kind of keep it off to the side of like it's fine, right? You know, almost in a sense like they're not real. They're not, you know what I mean? kind of brushing the consequences of what her husband has had to do to keep her alive to the side. And that feels like that's definitely going to come to a head at some point this season where she's not going to be able to, you know, accept the method that has been keeping her alive up until this point. Right. And I was even wondering, it felt like her mother instincts were kicking in when she saw the kids. So I was kind of curious, is she going to help them escape? So you could see it. What I'm very curious, so I, I take this as, because neither of us have read Sweet Tooth, uh, so I, I am speculating on this, but it feels like one of the two things isn't going to fully redeem themselves. I feel like it's probably the doctor, but I could also see a scenario in which she like starts to go down this path of seeing the humanity, but ultimately values her own survival more. Um, you know what I mean? And sort of offering a path at redemption and her rejecting it. That would be interesting. It, I feel like we're seeing it, the doctor being the one kind of spiraling. Um, so that seems more likely. But I don't know, Drew. I just don't... It doesn't feel likely to me that both things come out of this story okay. Yeah, I agree with you there. And uh, it, it feels like Dr. Singh is on his way to a breakthrough for the cure. Knowing the origin, I, I I've been I've been wondering, are we gonna see him? Are we gonna see him go to the facility? Was it in? I can't remember. Was it in the Arctic or the Antarctic? The facility. I want to say the Arctic. I'm pretty sure, but I, I'm not a hundred percent confident in that, Drew. All right, but well, I, I see him taking a voyage there and maybe possibly trying to take Gus or something. I don't know. I. Th 
I see him trying to seek out more information, so I guess we'll see if he goes on a journey or not. Maybe he'll get a hold of that diary that, that Amy has. Because Amy has a diary... Di was it Amy? No, wait a minute. It wasn't, it wasn't Amy. I'm, I'm confusing the characters. Amy's the zoo lady. No, Gus's mom has the diary. I'm wondering if he gets his hands on that diary somehow. He may not have to go to the Arctic. But I, I'm sure that diary has a key to what he's looking for. So, I don't know. It's getting, it's getting really interesting. Big Man and Amy are getting more muscle to come back and get the kids. Are the kids even going to still be there when they come back? It's, it's, good. it's interesting, that's for sure. All right, well, that wraps up our show for this week. Get a shout-out, Cletus. I do. So you mentioned the, the Deadeye character and not remembering where he's from. That's understandable, Drew, because he's very new. He just popped up during the Lazarus Planet storyline, so this is a very new character, obviously established as the nephew of Amanda Waller. Now, the Deadeye character title has existed in a couple different ways for DC. The hero now known as Grifter, from what my understanding is with Wildstorm, at one point was an, ali was an alias that Cole Cash was using before becoming Grifter. I'm seeing some other stuff that there was another, there has been like other Earth versions of Deadeye that have popped up. Like Grant Morrison has done a character like that. Mark Wade has done a character. Chuck Dixon. So a lot of different people have kind of dabbled on the idea of a Deadeye character. Clearly kind of, you know, referencing in some ways to Hawkeye and Deadshot and, you know, and many of these other kind of characters. So this is a new one, a new take, and definitely seems a little more unique and a little more kind of their own thing. And I was intrigued by his character, Drew. I liked it a lot. I was I have to admit, when I was first reading, I misunderstood it and thought that he was Deadshot. <laughs> and I was like, since when is Deadshot an EMT? <laughs> but once I realized that I was the dummy and you know realized what was actually going on, um, I was intrigued. It made me want to kind of look up and research this. So again, the, the Deadeye that we saw in this one is... is Brand new. He popped up in Lazarus Planet Next Evolution was his debut comic. So he is, this is probably the only the second book that he's popped up in, Drew. Hmm, that's really interesting. <laughs> I thought he was an older character than that. So, <laughs> All right, and for my shout-out, I honestly don't really have a shout-out for this week, Cletus. <laughs> <laughs> I've been busy prepping for this episode, and I've been busy trying to get our other episode out. So our, our Aquaman episode's out now, and I'm surprised by how many likes it's been getting. I have a feeling that once Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom hits max, it's going to get a big boost in people wanting to check it out. You know, people aren't going to the movies to see it to the theaters to see it, but I bet when it hits max, it's going to get a big bump in people watching it, because I was just surprised how many people were liking our episode. Yeah. Well, and the thing to keep in mind is, while it was not a smash hit by any means in the box office, it is not doing nearly as bad as some of the other recent DC fairs. So, I will admit that I was wrong, Drew, because I, I, I said repeatedly that I was unconvinced that this would make any money at all, and I just clearly have underestimated the Aquaman franchise in Jason Momoa, because it's still somehow, Drew, I will remain baffled forever how the first Aquaman made a billion dollars, but it did, and perhaps I should have taken that into account more, because again, I don't want to sit here and say that it was a, it was a huge hit, because it wasn't, but it 
it is not it has not been the financial disaster that the other ones have been. And you'll notice, Drew, we haven't been reading stories on it being a disaster either. So it did ultimately well enough that I, I have to I have to say DC was justified film um, you know, putting this out there. I I know I questioned it repeatedly on this podcast, but I just didn't think it was worth it and I I don't know, from a monetary standpoint, I don't know. It kinda seems like it was. <laughs> well, Jason Momoa has a big sci-fi following from when he was on Stargate Atlantis and from when he was on Game of Thrones. So it doesn't surprise me that people want to go see him in a movie. And uh, Oh, yeah, I don't want to make it sound like I'm disparaging Momoa at all. I just, it's, we've clearly seen, Drew, that these movies have been dead in the water, right? And like theoretically, hypothetically, Flash had more of a reason to go see it than some of these other ones. And Aquaman has done has been is just outright not been as poorly received and not as financially as disastrous. So I have to give it credit. I mean, I know it, this is you know kind of a backhanded compliment to it, but the movie's done. The movie's done okay. It it could have been way worse. That is very true. <laughs> All right. If you'd like to comment on anything we've talked about this week, you can reach us at a feedback line, 317-455-8411. Leave us a message, text us, or you can email us at earthstationdcu at gmail.com. All right, Cletus, coming up next week, we've got Danger Street, Superman Lost, World's Finest Teen Titans, Batman and Robin, Green Lantern, Action Comics, Detective Comics, Titans Beast World, and Titans Beast World Tour Gotham. And of course, our next episode of Sweet Tooth. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Time to go. You sure this is necessary? The Guardians of the Universe seem to think so. How long will you be gone? But we will be back, little brother. I wish I could go with. I doubt your mother would approve. I'll miss you. Perhaps you could water the plants in my apartment while I am gone. Be careful, all right? May the gods be with you all. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.